Hey, welcome back to Mission Control. We've had a little hiatus here uh, past couple of weeks, a little mini hiatus just as the school year ramps up for us. Um, but we're back um, on a day when the Astros will be heading to Boston, um, playing in a couple hours when you're, when you're listening to this against uh, the Red Sox at Fenway. There's a new team in first place, a team that has not been in first place in the AL West in 15, no, 20 years, 20 years uh, this late in the season, and that's Seattle. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about the division and sort of handicapping, looking at schedules, you know, the quality of the roster, the injuries of these three teams. Um, but first, we want to dive into the Astros a little more. And they're coming off a week here, um, a fairly successful week. Uh, they went four and three uh, against the Red Sox and Tigers, uh, started by winning two at home and then losing two at home. Um, and then a really devastating loss Friday night against Detroit, where they had a one nothing lead. They had a no-hitter into the eighth, and then two outs, nobody on, with a one nothing lead in the bottom of the ninth and gave up three straight singles and a walk-off three-run home run, but bounced back nicely and really just tore the Tigers up uh, Saturday and Sunday, which was encouraging to see um, from the point of view of Astros fans. Uh, in terms of the pitching, a really uneven week. You had in the Boston series, well, really, you had two starts from Justin Verlander this week, Tuesday against Boston and again yesterday in Detroit, where he looks back in terms of um, his fastball is not being squared up as well as it had been his first couple starts here. Um, he's a, not as efficient. I mean, even yesterday, he barely got himself through five innings under 100 pitches um, and was not able to come back out for the sixth. But the stuff is playing. He's missing bats, strikeout rates up. So we're, we're optimistic there. But with Javier, right, or Keedy, who had a rough start against Boston, and especially J.P. France, who tried to get all of his regression to the mean in about an hour uh, in his most recent start, um, a really rough stretch for um, what I guess now is the back half, right, of the six-man rotation, which is France, Urquidy, and Christian Javier, who certainly played himself out of that top three. So you're seeing a little, we'll talk more about this, but you're seeing a real break between the top three, I think, and the bottom three in the rotation where Hunter Brown's stuff is giving you a little more confidence now. You've clearly got a no-hitter for seven innings out of Framber, a great week out of Verlander. But then the back half of the rotation um, is forcing the bullpen to do a lot of work. Uh, and then lastly, you know, we're looking ahead either tonight, we don't have the news at time of recording, but all signs point to Michael Brantley being back by tomorrow night at the latest, Tuesday night at Fenway Park. Uh, they also have a lefty, Chris Sale, uh, pitching for Boston tonight. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, if you're sending out Corey Jolks, um, you, you let him be on the roster tonight, maybe even start. Um, although it's certainly possible that Mike, um, Mike Brantley comes back and takes John Singleton's spot. We don't know that. Um, but Brantley's coming back. Um, I, this is the first time I've said it in over a year where I felt like it's greater than 50-50 that he's actually going to play a baseball game for us because his rehab is done and he's meeting with doctors today and, there's no reason to think he could play yesterday and not tomorrow um, that we see. So assuming he is coming back, I want to open with this. I'm going to bring Aiden in in a second, of course. The thing with bringing Brantley back onto this roster right now, and we've had all this round and round about Dusty. Brantley's going to play against right-handers. He's always hit against righties. He's hit for average against righties. Um, he had a 99th percentile expected batting average in 2021, his last full season. Um, he was off a little last year, but still getting on base and hitting, you know, on base near 400 against righties, hitting uh, 300. So he's going to play. Whether he DHs or plays left field, it's a medical thing. It's also a Jordan medical thing that we can't see. 
but we assume that the two of them in either spot, doesn't really matter where, are going to play against most righties. And then you try to get Brantley his days off against lefties. He's going to sit against some righties too. I don't think they'll play Brantley five days in a row if they have five righties in a row. So he's going to sit one or two of those. But what you do with the rest of the playing time decides how valuable Brantley is, right? If Brantley sits Yiner down to take his place, and Yiner is now catching twice a week and maybe playing once a week at first base, um, and so he becomes a 50% player instead of a 90% player, and he started, I think, seven of the last eight or six of the last seven games, then Brantley is not likely to be a better hitter than Yiner Diaz, whose OPS against right-handed pitching this year is 900. I mean, if you sit him for Brantley, you're really not gaining anything because you still have Abreu, you still have Maldonado. Um, Maldonado can't hit righties at all. I mean, sub-pitcher level of offense against right-handed pitching. So if those guys stay in the lineup, what Brantley gives you is a more professional, uh, esteemed hitter in Yiner's spot who's not likely to be much better or better at all against righties. And then, of course, against lefties, Brantley has had historically, I know Aiden's going to touch on this, very little value um, contact quality and production-wise against left-handers. And there you're taking maybe Jake Myers out of center because you're moving Chaz over to get Brantley in the lineup. Or, you know, Abreu is probably a better bet against lefties. Maldi's a better bet against lefties. There's really no upside to playing Brantley against left-handed pitching. And so really, uh, you know, we do this on the podcast and, and the feedback we get is, look, you know, that's our focus um, this year, unfortunately. But the field manager has a lot on him. The field manager has to decide now, is Michael Brantley going to take playing time from Maldonado and Abreu? Or is he going to take playing time? And by the way, Dubon, perhaps, behind Verlander, because you absolutely can't get Yiner in the lineup behind Verlander if he's got to have Dubon and Maldi and you've got Brantley. So you have to squeeze, you know, somebody. Um, a lot's on the manager. The one thing I want to add, though, I do think fans are getting a little overhyped about Michael Brantley. And he's a likable player. He's part of the core. And he hits fairly well. He has no base running value left. He has no defensive value, um, you know, above the other options, certainly. And so you're really, and by the way, his power is minimal. I mean, he had like a 417 slug last year before he got hurt. On his rehab assignment, he's been mostly lining singles and doubles and just drawing a massive number of walks. His walk to strikeout was like 13 to 1 last I saw in AAA. So you're getting the command of the strike zone that we love, you know, the professional hitter. He's not going to come in here, though, especially if he's replacing Yiner and suddenly lengthen the lineup with another potent bat. Um, a lot depends on usage. So I think it's great that he's going to give it a shot. I hope he's healthy. I hope he can start four times a week against right-handed pitching. That would certainly be a boost above Myers, a boost above Dubon, a boost above Abreu, a boost above Maldi. But I'm not sure he's taking any of their playing time. And, and that's what he has to do to have value above what we've been running out. Because Abreu's been getting, you know, a little less playing time. And Diaz has been getting steady playing time. So if nothing changes there... You don't actually get a boost from Brantley. You just get a different face doing the same thing. Um, Aiden, thoughts on Brantley's imminent return here? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm excited for for Brantley. Obviously, this is a long way back. Um, there were serious questions, um, at least you know from the outside, over whether he'd ever play another game of professional baseball. So, assuming this you know report is true, and we've been let down in the past, but um, obviously there seems to be a bit more validity here, but. 
assuming it is true, um, you know, very exciting for Brantley. Um, but you're you're 100 right. This is it's really on Dusty Baker, um, among obviously the other coaches in the Astros staff who make baseball decisions uh, to 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 determine how excited fans actually should be. Um, the good news, and I say good news very cautiously here, is that Brantley's optimal role is actually quite obvious. The Astros needed a lefty bat at the deadline, or they needed a bat who could hit right-handed pitching. You know, I I, I sent out a tweet uh, the other day. Um, but the Astros really, really struggle against right-handed pitching. Um, to, to give a bit of an insight, insight into you know how how polarized the struggle is, uh, well, we can look at the Astros' top six hitters, and I think it's pretty undisputed at this point who they are. Against right-handed pitching, Jose Altuve has a 163 WRC+. Alex Bregman has a 139 WRC+. Jordan Alvarez has a 155 WRC+. Kyle Tucker has a 129 WRC+. Yiner Diaz has a 151 WRC+. And Chaz McCormick has a 121 WRC+. That's awesome. Like, any top six, you take that no matter who the righty is, you feel good about those six. But the Astros as a team, and I'm pulling this up right now, the Astros as a team have a... uh, 100 WRC plus they're a league average offense. And so you might be sitting here saying, how are they a league average offense against right-handed pitching when they have that top six? Well, for starters, the five and six in that top six actually didn't play uh, as much as they should have. Obviously Altuve and Jordan missed a lot of time with injury. So um, you'd like to think that they're a little bit better than that when at full strength and when, you know, Chaz and Yiner are actually being used appropriately by their manager. But the other reason is, let's look at who else they've had. Jose Abreu, 72 WRC plus against righties. Mauricio Dubon, 77. Jake Myers, 77. Martin Maldonado, 29. John Singleton, 19. Corey Jolks, 84. Corey Jolks has the next highest WRC plus among players who have, you know, actually stayed around for a little while on the Astros. And I'm not suggesting Corey Jolks stay around and start every game versus righties, but, you know, that speaks volumes for the lack of depth they have. Um, so look, Jeremy Payne is going to be in the lineup no matter what. He's the best defensive option you have at shortstop. And I guess the only other realistic guy is Dubon. And, you know, Dubon doesn't crush righties himself. So Pena will be there against righties. So that's seven guys who need to be there against righties. But who else? I mean, look, Maldonado will probably be in there most games. In 2021, you had the most obvious platoon catcher split of all time with Jason Castro, who crushed righties, and Marky Maldonado, who couldn't hit a lick against righties. But Dusty Baker still showed. And, you know, maybe to some good reason, but not much, that he cares more about uh, the, the the pitcher that the Astros are throwing than the pitcher the opponent are, uh, is throwing uh, when deciding who to start at catcher. Um, but if Dusty Baker didn't platoon then, he's not going to platoon now. So look, if Martin Maldonado is that eighth guy there, so be it. It seems like that's just a foregone conclusion. But who's the last guy, right? You don't want Myers in there. You don't want Dubon in there. You don't want Jolks in there. Doesn't seem, although he's, you know, batted ball data might be a little more encouraging. You don't seem like you want Singleton there. You don't want to bray you there. At least I don't. So that's where Brantley slots in. He makes, he can make a massive upgrade to this roster against, uh, against righties. But let's look at what that entails, right? You have McCormick in center. You have Tucker in right. You could theoretically... Uh, DH uh, Yiner Diaz, but if you DH Yiner Diaz and put uh, Jordan in left, then you're leaving an opening at first base and suddenly, well, Brantley actually does need to go substitute for Yiner because 
you know, you don't, you cannot kind of put Brantley at first base. So what you have to do, and I mean have to do, is put Yiner at first base in that configuration and let Jordan and Brantley split up left field and DH responsibilities. But is Dusty going to do that? Or is he going to care way too much about putting the perfect uh, infield defense behind Fromber as if Singleton or Abreu make up a perfect first baseman defensively? Um, and so, look, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but there's a wide range of outcomes here. And if any of them include bumping Yiner out of the lineup against right-handed pitching, that's a serious issue. Um, because look, I mean, Brantley's uh, weighted runs created plus against righties when, with the Astros, 145 in 2019, 156 in 2020, 156 in 2021, 133 in 2022. Like the guy in his career has hit righties, obviously gone through an injury, probably expect a little bit less. But that's not going to be better than what Yiner Diaz does going forward. So you're getting a worse bat. You're not getting any value on defense. And so, you know, look, that's my take on righties. Um, I mean, we can talk about lefties in a little bit, but the Astros just don't need Brantley against lefties. I mean, Mauricio Dubon against left-handed pitching has a – I'll check on this now, but he, I think he has a, like, a one, uh, 136 WRC+. plus. Like Mauricio Dubon crushes lefties, and I don't even think he's in the optimal lineup against lefties because McCormick has a 197 WRC plus, uh, Jordan is a 151, Tucker 150, uh, 167, uh, Jake Myers 134, but obviously a better defender than Dubon. So that's four outfielders right there who you're playing over Dubon. You're not sitting Pena, who also crushes lefties, Altuve or Bregman. So unless you're willing to slot uh, Dubon in at first base, he can't play. So where's Brantley going to play? Brantley's a guy who. In 2019, he had a 102 WRC plus against lefties, but the next two years followed it up with 73 and 57. So, look, there's a lot on the line here with yes. how to use Brantley. It's almost like, you know, not to be too hard on Dusty, but they're throwing a manager who's fumbled his baseball decisions the entire year a curveball here, and we have to expect him to, to hit it out of the park. Um, so I don't feel great about that. Um, but at the same time, the downside here is not too significant. I mean, the only real way this is a, a huge issue is if it bumps Yiner out of the lineup against righties, Myers it's out of the lineup against lefties, or maybe Dubon out of the lineup against lefties. And it does seem like come playoff time, that can't happen. I think Dusty's starting to realize that Yiner Diaz needs to be in the lineup all the time. I think for some better or worse reasons, Myers and Dubon will find their time. So I have to remain optimistic, but there's a, there's a lot at stake here. Yeah, you're a little more optimistic than me. I mean, you look at this schedule going forward. Um, they're going to see righties this week in Boston, Tuesday and Wednesday. They're going to see righties two out of three uh, at home against the Yankees on Saturday and Sunday. And then they're lined up to see Dunning and Scherzer in Arlington next Tuesday and Wednesday. So you're looking at six righties here in the next nine or ten days. Must win games. Am I confident Diaz is going to start five of those six games? I'm not. If Brantley is activated, I think Brantley starts five of the six, roughly. Um, I think he'll sit against the lefties, I hope, for now. Because it, basically just Dusty knows he can't play him every day medically. That's, that's kind of what saves Yiner a little bit. But that said, is he going to sit Abreu? I mean, who does he sit on those days that Brantley is in the lineup against Bello, against Scherzer, against I don't know, Severino, uh, against the Yankees later this week? Um, I have to assume he's going to play Abreu, and I have to assume he's going to play Maldonado. And if he's going to – now, a lot depends on you know who's pitching for us in those games. And I suppose Hunter Brown is against Severino right now, so we might get lucky there on Maldonado. But I don't know. I mean, game one – I mean, let's – 
you know, assume we're making the playoffs in some capacity, which is an assumption still. God knows we can get past here by, by Toronto. But assume we make it in some capacity, and your game one is against a right-handed starter behind Verlander, right? So do Bonds in center? Or I guess we didn't, you know, last year we didn't have a personal center fielder in the playoffs, but we also had James Click's front office sending down the sheets, as Dusty called them every game. I don't know that Dubon is taken away from Dusty in the playoffs, but just say he is. So just say you do get Chaz in center. Okay, even say Framber's pitching, right? Maldonado's going to catch either way, Verlander or Framber. And then it comes down to essentially Brantley or Abreu, right? Is he going to put Brantley at DH and Yiner at first? Or is he going to put Abreu at first because he doesn't trust Yiner to defend it? And right now I think the answer is Abreu. I do not think he takes Abreu out of the game one lineup right now, which you have to do. And I certainly don't think he takes Maldonado out of any playoff lineup with any pitcher he's worked with most of the year. So really, that's what you're looking at. Is is Jose Abreu going to lose his job or not? If he's not going to lose his job, that's checkmate for Yiner uh, for 2023. Um, And, you know, so I'm not at the point where I root against Abreu in his at-bats. He's still here. We need him to, like, show signs of life. But to the extent that Abreu does have a good month here, Yiner's going to be on the bench in game one. I mean, if Brantley's shoulder holds up and Abreu has a good month, and probably game two, for that matter, because you're going to have, you know, Verlander or or Framber in one order or the other. So, you know, that's my take on it. I'll get your thought here before we move on, but I don't see the scenario where unless Abreu looks like a total corpse, I mean, like Jolks when he went over 36 to get sent down. I don't see a scenario where Dusty benches him for Yiner to start the playoffs. And that's scary because there's a 200 point difference in OPS. There's, you know, 35% difference or 45% difference in uh, WRC plus. But Abreu's got to lose the job still, it feels like. Yeah, I mean, I, I look, I share your concerns. Um, I don't see a clear path to playing time for Yiner Diaz, which is, beyond pathetic and yeah i I don't at a certain point it's beating a dead horse but this is you know not to not to you know use this argument again but brantley's a veteran this is what you mentioned about yiner you know yiner needs to play over one of brantley abreu maldonado i think those are the three oldest hitters on the astros roster at least maybe maybe altuve but otherwise yeah i mean the three oldest the three veterans on the astros roster who you could sort of point to their veteran status as a reason they're staying in the lineup, maybe a little bit more than their statistics. Um, And you have this young guy. And I mean, let's also consider this, right? So the Astros get into round one of the playoffs. Who are their most likely opponents? Well, at this point, we could say the Tampa Bay Rays, maybe. The Tampa Bay Rays four starters right now, are top four starters are all right-handed pitchers. They're all right-handed pitchers. You look at, the Minnesota Twins with Sonny Gray, Joe Ryan, Pablo Lopez, all right-handed pitchers. You look at the Toronto Blue Jays with Gosman, Bassett, and I guess Yusei Kikuchi, who might save save the Astros as a lefty. You look at the, the Seattle Mariners, their five elite young pitchers, I guess Castillo's not too young, but young pitchers are all right-handed. You look at the Texas Rangers, and they have Montgomery there, but Outside of that, I guess maybe Heaney gets a playoff start, but probably it's just Scherzer, Montgomery, Gray, and then they figure out how to cover that last game. You look at the Orioles, and I 
guess Cole Irvin could get a playoff start. Like the American League playoffs is filled with right-handed starters. It's Montgomery, it's Kikuchi, and then a bunch of guys who maybe could get a start. That's not even saying it's coming against the Astros. So how they hit lefties actually kind of stops mattering after October 1st. It kind of stops mattering. You mentioned the Orioles, and you know the the Rays are within two games there. The Orioles clearly, I think people assume because of the Wander Franco situation, the Orioles are just going to run away. But the Rays are a better team. The Rays are like 80 runs better than the Orioles this year. There's no reason that the Rays can't win that division. And then you've got a 4-5 with Baltimore, and that's going to be, I mean, you didn't mention names, but that's going to be Grayson Rodriguez. That's going to be Kyle Bradish, who's had a great year. That's going to be um, Flaherty, who they just rented from St. Louis. It's going to be righties. And so I think for Astros fans, we're going to move on to the pitching here in a second, but when you look at Brantley and be excited for Brantley, because it's a great story and he's part of a lot of great teams here. It really reminds me of 2019 to get off of Dusty here. And the situation between Brantley and Abreu um, is kind of, with Yiner involved is kind of like Yiner as Kyle Tucker and Abreu as sort of Josh Reddick. And we saw that AJ had a real hard time. He tried it a couple times in the division series. So there's, I think once in the division series and once against the Yankees. He tried Tucker there with that sort of death team lineup, right? We saw Springer and Correa and Jordan was a rookie and everything. But they ended up riding with Reddick for, you know, 11 out of 13 games or whatever it was. And that probably hurt him. And Yiner has put even more production on paper than Tucker had at the time. Tucker only had 120 plate appearances that year, 110 or something like that. He had very little playing time. Yiner's got 300 and something plate appearances to show that he's a much better hitter than Abreu. And I, I think it probably ends up in that same bucket of Dusty when the chips are down, it's going to roll out a bunch of 30-somethings and give it a shot. I mean, we'll see. Um, so, okay, that said, we're going to monitor Brantley, monitor um, Abreu, also monitor who goes down. Um, I think if Singleton stays here, he's in that role where he pinch hits from Aldi against righties, right? I think that's probably the, the role he was brought here for is to pinch hit from Aldi and maybe Myers against righties late in games. Um, but he also has been stealing some first base starts. He's got this kind of a weird profile. He has more walks than strikeouts, but he's you know basically not squaring up a bunch of hittable pitches. So his average is pretty low when he does swing. Um, good good swing decisions, bad outcomes um, from, from Singleton. And so there's a bit of a crowd at first base. So we need to see how that resolves itself because um, that's going to determine Brantley's impact and how positive it is. Um, right, now the pitching's a mess. Um, you've got three guys you feel pretty good about, but you're in a six-man rotation, and the back three, since we last spoke and you ranked them all and talked about what a sort of toss-up it is, right, between a lot of these pitchers, Urquidy did not look great this week. France looked especially dismal, and Christian Javier has reversed whatever momentum he had, and we've talked about his approach angle on the fastball and things like that. So I guess starting with the back half of the rotation, any signs of optimism on those three guys, on Urquidy, on Javier, and on France? Is there one who you feel especially low confidence in when their turn comes up, where if we did go back to a five-man? Because we have a bunch of off days coming up. You know, We talked about this before, but the Astros have played more games than anybody they're competing with, which means Seattle doesn't have a lot of off days left. Arlington doesn't have a lot of off days left. The East teams don't. We do. We have pretty regular off days the last five weeks of the season. So if you do take someone out of the rotation, is there a guy you think should go? And then who do you feel best about in that back half group? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I, uh, I, you know, think that there is a lot of merit to supporting a lot and also, I guess, not supporting a lot of different pitchers. It's a, it's a very polarized group. Um, I mean, even we saw Fromber uh, post some concerns, obviously, that doesn't mean you're ever taking him out of the rotation or especially, you know, the playoff rotation. But, um, you know, there are very few, if not, if any player pitchers on the Astros staff have done uh, a perfect job of both of uh, picking a side between, you know, excelling and struggling. Um, so to, to break them down, um, I play a sort of a little bit of, a game with their uh, stats, just, you know, a a very, very simplistic model um, to determine, you know, how successful are these guys? How much are they controlling swing decisions? Are they generating weak contacts? And to do this, I I split sort of good outcomes into four categories. There's called strike rate, uh, chase rate, end zone whiff rate, and barrel rate. Um, You know, I think generally speaking, those plus foul balls are the way that ways that, you know, you're happy with a pitch. And obviously barrel rate is, you know, how much can you limit barrels? Um, Foul balls are a little more noisy and a little less predictive of future success because it is contact. You're not actually missing the bat on a swing. But um, so if you break it down into those four categories, uh, Pitcher List offers a very uh, strong uh, dashboard where they feature percentiles for each pitcher. Um, And so you take each pitcher's percentiles in each statistic. So for reference, you know, Justin Verlander's in the 83rd percentile of chase rate. Um, What's uh, uh, whereas JP France is in the sixth percentile of chase rate, but JP France is in the 77th percentile of called strikes rate, whereas Verlander's in the 31st percentile of called strikes rate. So you have a bunch of percentiles. So if you take all all six pitchers in the Astros rotation, you take those four percentiles for each pitchers and you average them you get a very interesting ranking. And by no means am I saying that this is the ranking the Astros should go with, but it does, you know, reveal a few truths that might be pretty interesting to dissect. So it's the rankings are, they, you can almost bunch the pitchers in groups of two, where one, two are very close, three, four are very close, and five, six. So one, two, very interestingly, Justin Verlander is number one with an average percentile of 60.25. Jose Arquiti is number two with an average percentile of 58.25. So, Verlander, pretty expected. Urquidy, not so expected. And I'll break that down in a little bit. Three and four, you have Framber Valdez at three with 48.75 and JP France with 45.5. Okay, fair. And then five and six, Christian Javier, 39.25 and Hunter Brown, 35.25, which is quite low. Um, And look, you know, there's a lot to be said about that, but, you know, we'll start with Urquidy. Arkady is someone I actually wrote an article about uh, for Pitcher List recently because I've noticed something very, very interesting. When you think of Jose Arkady, you know, you 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 rightfully think of him as a zone filler, a strike thrower. You know, Jose Arkady is someone who you don't sweat three, two counts a lot with. Um, but that actually changed quite a bit. And I'll, I'll explain why. Um, Jose Arkady in 2021 led the league in zone rate. And his zone rate was... Um, it was 54.5% according to pitcher list this year. It's 42.4%, which falls in the 14th percentile. And I don't think that's because Jose Arquiti just lost the ability to, 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 to pound the zone. That's a very rare thing to lose. Usually you'll lose stuff. You'll lose velo, but, but your ability to pound the zone is probably something that's a little more uh, sticky year to year. 
income. And so in that regard, or at least sticky over the duration of a career, because it's not as impacted by injuries and, and other uh, events. And so the main explanation for why that is, is Jose Arquiti realized that he was such an extreme in this statistic, realized that that was a potential point of exploitation for opposing hitters, saw that he had a very high swing rate against, I think in that same year, he had the third highest swing rate against um, so hitters were recognizing it. It was in the scouting reports that Jose Arquiti just fills the zone. And then this year, or I mean, last year he dropped off a little bit, but this year even more. Now you're getting the case where his zone rate's a lot lower. And actually his swing rate hasn't changed all that much. 2021, when it was third highest in the league, it was 52.9%. This year it's 50.9%. Like it's so just hitters dropped off have by basically, just to simplify here, he's 180, right? I know you wrote about this in the yeah. article. He is choosing to throw fewer strikes than ever because he's aware of his reputation and that he gets hammered in certain counts. But hitters are still swinging as if he's a zone filler, which is creating lots of chase opportunities for Arquiti. Is that, is that basically how you? Yes, do it? absolutely. It's and and it goes to show that the swings were even more, that the swings before when he was filling the zone were was even more a product of just the, his reputation and the scouting report than it was, you know, the actual pitches, if that makes sense, because there's not really this clear correlation, right? Theoretically, there should be a correlation between zone rate and swing rate. And I bet you that there is among league-wide pitchers. But if you look at Jose Urquidy's career, his zone rate has changed a lot and his swing rate has remained relatively unchanged. So there actually isn't this strong of a, of a drop-off that you'd expect, meaning that hitters are still sort of, I'd say, operating under the assumption that they're getting this zone-filling Jose Arquiti. Um, now, I will say, and going to this uh, back to this Boston game, I did write the article before the Boston start, and so I was particularly attentive to it when Arquiti faced Boston uh, last Wednesday, um, because I actually, I can check the exact numbers. I Jose Arquiti uh, threw uh, 100 pitches and generated uh, 48 swings and so a bit lower um a bit more on you know the on par with what you'd expect given his new zone rate um his zone rate in that start was actually 57 percent, so he was filling the zone a little bit more so an, a further evidence that maybe swing rate and zone rate aren't as aligned as you'd expect for urquidy um but regardless what this has allowed urquidy to do is he's now in the 95th percentile of chase rate which makes sense, right? We established that hitters are still swinging at pitches and it doesn't really matter if it's in the zone. So yeah, Jose Arquiti is going to get a lot of chases, but he's also in the 88th percentile of in-zone whiff rate. And there are a lot of reasons why he also stopped his cut his fastball usage down from, I want to say like 52% to 32%, started throwing his sweeper more, which is his best pitch. Like his arsenal has improved and he's still locating well. It's just well in a different way. The issue, and here's where I'm, you know, not going to jump to say, wow, this new Urquidy is great. Because guess what? For what it's worth, the bar isn't that high. Christian Javier has not been very good. JP France, I don't expect to continue. I mean, obviously the Boston start was the Boston start, but he'll be some happy medium between that Boston start and what he was for the last two months. So the bar isn't that high, but I'm not ready to jump and say, you need Jose Urquidy in the playoff rotation. Now, if you get this chase rate and in zone whiff rate, then maybe actually you do need Urquidy in the playoff rotation. But the issue here is that this is all based on reputation. It's not like Jose Urquidy's arsenal, at least in most, for, for, mo for the most part, is just new and just de like designed to succeed. Hitters can adjust, right? I, in, the, in the article I wrote, I painted it sort of as a chess match between Urquidy and hitters, and hitters are on the clock here. 
but that doesn't mean that they can't move, right? So um, it's something to monitor more more than anything about actually Arkady going forward. It's how hitters respond to Arkady, yeah, how much they swing. In, you know, when I teach economics, we talk a lot, and I know you've taken courses in it. I mean, you're at UChicago. You can't avoid it. It's everywhere. Um, but we, we talk about imperfect information, right? And the idea, of course, is in baseball, hitters have imperfect information as well. They don't know what pitch is coming. They, they just go based on past trends. In a world where hitters did have perfect information about Urquidy, Like 2017? Yeah, yeah exactly. that's how you short-circuit it. Um, you know, so if, if the opposing hitters know everything about Urquidy, they know everything about Javier. They know everything about um, JP France. So that they have enough scouting information to say, these are the pitches they're going to throw. Don't chase this. He's throwing this here more than ever, et cetera, et cetera. Who would you trust most in one start? Because in the postseason, that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about teams that are trying to be as well prepared as they can possibly be. If you're down two to one in a division series or you're up two to one, whatever the case may be, that's the only time you're seeing these pitchers, right? So these are the highest leverage games imaginable. Is there a guy who you think, even if hitters have caught up, this is the guy who has the best chance to avoid barrels tonight? And that would be theoretically the number four starter, right? Is there any reason to believe in, say, Javier's stuff is still carrying the day there today? I mean... Look, I'd say that Christian Javier in 2021 is almost, or 2022 is almost perfect for that scenario because Javier was someone where we saw when he was at his best in, in New York and in Philly, he can just throw fastballs down middle, middle, and it doesn't matter. It's such a, it's such a unique shape that hitters just still have a tough time barreling it. Unfortunately, this year, you know, if you look at raw stuff, plus uh, JP France, 104, Jose Arquiti, 102, Christian Javier, 100. So uh, Christian Javier's re- now stuff is down to, you know, league average. And is you know, obviously Christian Javier has never been a, a high location plus guy, um, whereas Arcadia uh, and France are. So I'd say right now, given that Christian Javier, he's last on that list. I mean, if you know what to expect from Christian Javier, if you've done research and you know that that fastball isn't what, what it once was, like, I, I don't, it's going to get hit. And it's, he doesn't have enough uh, secondary stuff to really offset that. So no Javier there. And between Arcadia and France, it really comes down to stuff versus location. And it's it's weird because both are probably a bit more location guys than stuff. But, I mean, Arcadia is someone who just has been able to locate pitches very well in his career, where France is someone whose stuff is actually okay. His changeup is solid. His fastball usually shouldn't get crushed, even though it really did in Boston, uh, against Boston. Um, so it's close between those two. Um, I'd probably lean France just almost using my naivety to France's advantage and you know at least France has spent the last two months dominating and pitchers and hitters still haven't really figured him out maybe Boston's is the first start in a in a sweet sequence where we see that pitchers that hitters figured him out it'll it'll be very interesting to see if France is able to respond against Boston I think tomorrow um, because obviously there's a lot to be said about the adjustments that he can make and how much it was just a one 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 one-time thing and so just to add to that on the other end of that bottom three Last time we talked, Hunter Brown really had not distinguished himself enough. Are you comfortable saying game three of a wild card series, 1-1, you've burnt JV and Fromber? It's no-brainer now. It's Hunter Brown's going to get the ball in game three. Or it, obviously we saw him Saturday in Detroit. That's not a great lineup, right? But certainly appeared to be missing bats more than in the past, the past few weeks. 
um, limiting damage. So what are your thoughts on, on Hunter as a clear notch above in this rotation right now, the other sort of non-elite options? He is. I mean, he's definitely above. And I've been on the Hunter Brown wagon all year, haven't hopped off one bit, um, despite, you know, a few starts that have at least made me think. Um, and you've seen it on Twitter, I'm sure, where you get the fans who just love this run prevention run from JP France and ignore that Hunter Brown is just more likely to be successful at the big league level. Um, and it, Hunter Brown's a kind of a perfect example of how to how much to care about ERA and how much to care about ERA indicators. Um, because look, Hunter Brown among qualified starters has the highest BABIP in baseball by by, a mar by quite a margin. His is 341, next highest is 333. Hunter Brown also has the second highest home run to fly ball rate in baseball among quality qualified starters. And those are two measures generally of luck, or I guess in Hunter Brown's case, bad luck. But look, Hunter Brown's fastball shape is pretty generic. And I think when you have a generic fastball shape, you're more likely to give up barrels and you're probably more likely to give up home runs. Um, and Hunter Brown does give up fewer fly balls than most of the pitchers at the top of this home run per fly ball rate. So uh, you're probably less likely to be crushed by home runs. Um, like the other pitchers at, top, at the top of this leaderboard are, or at least a lot of them are guys who actually do have home run issues or at least did this year. So Hunter Brown's probably can expect some positive regression in both of those departments, which, you know, if you're giving up fewer base runners and you're allowing fewer home runs, that's obviously very, you know, much reason to be excited. Uh, but because Hunter Brown's fastball shape is pretty generic, um, you can expect a, above average home run to fly ball rate and BABIP, in which case maybe he's not going to regress all the way to, let's say, his his uh, 333 XFIP and where XFIP tries to standardize uh, home run to fly ball rate uh, among all uh, among all pitchers. So, look, Hunter Brown's probably going to be, at least in my opinion, like a 3-6 ERA, ERA guy the rest of the year. But that's just objectively better than what you can expect from any other guy in the Astros rotation. I mean, maybe France can squeak something out. But, look, France is just not not a 3-6 ERA guy, at least right now. He's very, very encouraging rookie year. I think everybody will take what he's done, um, even in terms of its future prospects, um, over what we probably expected when he first got called up. But Hunter Brown will be fine. And at this point, you kind of just have to take fine. The other obvious benefit with Hunter Brown, and I just can't believe this needs to be pointed out, but it just does, who catches him? I mean, that's just a massive upgrade in your lineup. And I understand France probably falls into that bucket too. So this is more, you know, saying relative to Urquidy and Javier. But you need Yiner Diaz in your lineup in the postseason. You just do. It's wins left on the table in the in the postseason. And if you think I if you think I get mad about wins left on the table in the regular season, just wait until October, um, because obviously those are much more significant. And um, we don't want to we, we don't want to trigger that rage. But I do think it's worth noting that if you do catch Yiner um, for Hunter in the postseason, right, which you assume they will. Now you have room for Brantley and Jordan and one more hitter against right-handed pitching. So then we have another discussion of who's the first baseman there, right? Because if you take Maldi out of the lineup, then you have the Abreu versus Singleton versus other options. So um, we're going to switch gears here and start talking a little bit about the AL West race to get there. And if you haven't looked at the standings in the past day or two, uh, Seattle has taken a one-game lead. Uh, over both Arlington and the Astros. And worth noting, the Astros have played, I mentioned this last segment in regards to rest days and the rotation, but the Astros have played two more games than both Seattle and Arlington. And so, you know, in terms of the loss column, for those who care about that, 
Um, Seattle has two fewer losses than the Astros. Um, although when you're dealing with teams that are all fairly close to 500, that's not a huge difference. You can't assume a win in the sort of open date that you get um, in Major League Baseball. So, all right, I want to talk first about Seattle because, of course, they haven't led the division in 20 years down the stretch. And they are a legitimately scary team to me. I've said this on Twitter. Um, I think Seattle, in terms of the quality of the pitching, the depth of the lineup, now they subtracted, they traded their closer at the deadline. And so their bullpen is actually a little thinner than they would like it. Um, but their rotation is so deep. The lineup is so deep. They don't have a single hitter among, now that they've gotten rid of Colton Wong, among their top guys, and Josh Rojas has come over from our old friend, Josh Rojas, who according to uh, various reports, um, he was in the Granky trade because Jim Crane basically told Jeff Lunau, like, just get it done. You can't hold it up over Rojas. Um, and so he's found his way into the narrative here in Seattle. He's hit like crazy at second base. So they have WRC plus is over 100, OPS plus is over 100 for their entire lineup. Every single guy who's getting plate appearances there is over 100, except for their backup catcher. Even their bench is now all guys at 100 or above. Um, not a lot of star performers there. Julio Rodriguez has finally heated up after being a league average hitter for four months um, and has turned into a beast, and he's got his WRC up to about 125. But really, that lineup is balanced and long. Um, it's also somewhat more left-handed than a lot of teams we see, um, but not overly so. It's pretty balanced. Um, that said, their schedule the rest of the way, if you look at Seattle, it is easy right now. They've got a three-game series starting tonight with Oakland, um, and you would expect them to win all three of those at home, but it would be a wonderful gift. If you're an Astros fan, you sign right now for two out of three against Oakland. Um, and then they go to New York against a kind of a weird Yankees team um, that, you know, it's hard to really know exactly what you'd expect out of them. Um, and then they've got Cincinnati on the road, Tampa for four on the road, home against the Angels, but then the Dodgers. So, you know, it, it's not the easiest schedule in the world. Um, they also finish up with exclusively the two teams in the division. Their last 11 games, excuse me, 10 games, last 10 games are seven with the Rangers and three with the Astros. And we will be in Seattle for those games the last three weekdays of the season. So the second to last series of the season. Easy now, but getting progressively harder, but extremely deep. And, you know, looking at them personally, I'd say that that is the bigger challenge for the Astros, even if you don't spot them the game in the tie break. The fact that you do have to spot them a game and a tie break, they would probably be my favorites to win the division. Arlington, without Josh Young at third base, um, still have lots of good hitters, still performing well. Um, you know, certainly not a team that you take for granted as, you know, that they're going to fade. They've got plenty of good bats. Um, if they get Nathan Evaldi back, um, that would certainly help their rotation quite a bit because you're seeing a lot of their starting pitching. I know you look at the pitching side of it, but guys like Heaney and Dunning and even John Gray, these guys have outperformed their peripherals all season. And if you look at some of their ex-FIP kind of stuff, um, I have much less confidence in their ability to pitch for the next five weeks compared to Seattle's rotation. Now, 
Does that matter strategically? Not, not especially. Most important thing is that Dusty Baker puts his best pitchers. We've already told you the top three has taken a clear step above the bottom three here. He needs to line guys up for those series. There's no reason we can't. Seattle's kind of stuck because they have to play both teams back to back. They're going to throw their whole rotation for 10 games in a row. We have the ability to tinker with things here with all of our off days and our easier schedule. The Astros should be able to make sure that Verlander sees Seattle and Texas. Fromber sees Seattle and Texas. And Hunter Brown probably could as well, but certainly at least one of the two. There's no reason that you have to give two starts to J.P. France there or two starts to uh, Urquidy or two starts to Javier. Frankly, any starts to Javier right now against those two teams. Um, but that's what it looks like right now. Fangraphs gives us 40% to win the AL West. They also give Seattle 40% and they give Arlington just a hair under 20. So that's what they clearly see two teams as better than the third right now with uh, Arlington being the third. Uh, Aiden, how do you see it? I mean, is Seattle the clear and present danger right now? And if so, what does that mean for what Dusty has to think about going into the last six weeks of the season? I think so. I mean, that pitching staff is, is disgusting. Um, I mean, this is without the guy they spent over $100 million on in, in the 2021-2022 offseason. Um, they have four young guys who are just really, really good pitchers. And obviously, that's not even counting probably who their best pitcher is, which is Luis Castillo. Um, and as you said, the lineup is just deep. It's not star-studded, but obviously, you know, extracting Julio at least. But um, it's it's a, that's a good team. I mean, it's a re there's, a, there's a reason that's a team that has given the Astros fits. Also, I talk about how the Astros... Um, you know, have pretty extreme lefty righty splits where it's like, you know, 124 against left WRC plus against lefties and 100 WRC plus against righties. Seattle's even at 108, 108. Um, so even though, you know, you send out lefties and the Astros lineup is much better, you send out right, righties and suddenly, I mean, you're dealing with a better lineup and a better rotation um, on Seattle's part. Seattle also has the lowest uh, expected ERA in baseball this year to absolutely nobody's surprise. Um, like, they're, like they're a better team than than the Texas Rangers are. Um, you can make the case that they're the better a better team than the, the Astros are. Think best foot forward. You probably take the Astros, but but it's 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 close. And Seattle is a tiebreaker, and Seattle is currently up on them. Um, I mean, what you said about the last series in Seattle is a very good point. I think this this unless you expect just one team to have a much better month. Uh, before that series or before, let's say, that 10-game stretch that Seattle has against Texas and Houston. Um, this will come down to those last two weeks, and the Astros have the advantage of not having to line their rotation for to, to optimize the, the Kansas City series beforehand. And it actually works out perfectly, too, where Seattle, the three Seattle games are your sixth-to-last, fifth-to-last, and fourth-to-last games of the year, which means that if you're running a six-man rotation, you give Verlander, Fromber, and say Hunter Brown, those three games and the the the, the latter three uh, starters, the last three games against Arizona, and then boom, you're also aligned for the postseason. So that's a real advantage that the Astros need to take advantage of. I sent out a tweet the other, I think, yeah, the other day. Um, currently, Justin Verlander does not seem like he'll start against Texas, which I think is a huge mistake. One of the big talking points um, in the, uh, against Texas the last time we faced them when uh, we threw out Brandon Belak was Oh, this exposure argument where Hunter Brown, they'd seen Hunter Brown twice already that season, hadn't pitched too well. Why should we give them a third look at Hunter Brown where Belak's fresh? 
I already explained then why I thought that argument was completely ridiculous. Um, the exposure argument has validity until you start comparing, until you start using it as a reason to prefer Brandon Belak to Hunter Brown. But at least with the Astros, I don't know with the Mets, but with the Astros, Justin Verlander hasn't faced Texas this year. Um, I mean, that's a huge, huge plus that I think you would, that you you would get from getting a Verlander start in Texas, and the Astros are are completely missing that, and they wouldn't be missing that if they just gave Javier yesterday start in Detroit like he would be anyway, because he was ahead of Verlander in the rotation anyway. You give Verlander this Boston game, run a six-man, and then boom, uh, Verlander starting next Monday against Texas. So I think that was a mistake. Hopefully that doesn't cost them, and that because of how much of an issue Seattle is, it almost feels like maybe opt- optimizing rotation just against Texas isn't as necessary, but it is. I mean, Texas is still scary. So this will come down to the wire as much as possible. And you know, going back to this urgency point, if you're going to argue that there is not a need for playoff urgency right now, you're basically arguing that you can expect there to be a point in the in the season, like at the end of the season, where you can look back and say, oh, told you like these games, like told you that this one game didn't actually matter. Like you're expecting there to be a two to three, maybe even four game gap at the end of the year. And that's just does not seem likely. I mean, this is as much as likely to come down to the last game as you can get in the division race at this point in the year. So that's the bet, isn't it, Aiden? The bet they seem to be making over and over again is basically, look, if you just let us play the long game here, no one's going to care about these various inefficiencies, right? No one's going to care that we didn't do X, Y, and Z. To get to your point on Verlander, though, um, I understand what you're saying about having switched him or not switched him to line him up. They theoretically can still line him up because of the off day. Um, if they wanted to pitch him Friday night, what's currently, I believe, Urquidy's start um, at Yankee Stadium. Or not Yankee Stadium, sorry, they're here. Um, but against the Yankees here on Friday night, um, then you could start him on normal rest Wednesday the last game of the series uh, in Arlington to pitch. The, and then with Framber, of course, he's going to pitch on Wednesday here. So he'd be on normal rest Monday or Tuesday in that series. So at least you get both of them in that series. And then you can decide what you want to do, you know, with one of those other first two games. It probably wouldn't be Hunter Brown at that point. He'd pitch Saturday or Sunday against the Yankees. But, you know, you could start, you know, theoretically in that series, you could go, you know, um, Urquidy, Verlander, excuse me, Urquidy, Framber, Verlander, or you could do France, Framber, Verlander, or Javier, Framber, Verlander. You basically would have your choice of the bottom three pitchers, but that would require skipping people to keep JV every fifth day um, for Friday night and then for Wednesday of next week. That's the no-brainer to me, is that at this point, you just paid with your top two prospects to bring this guy in. And you're losing to a team that's sold at the deadline. I mean, at some point you have to go for it if you're going for it. Um, and so I, I do think that um, I'm hopeful still, because I know what you're saying about switching it, but the reason I interject is I'm very hopeful that when they announce the starters for the Yankee series, they will go to JV on normal rest. And even with a day game, it's like half a day more than normal rest, but on Friday night uh, against the Yankees at home. Um, and then Saturday and Sunday, they've already got Framber lined up to pinch, pitch against Texas one way or another, um, you know, if, if he pitches Monday uh, or Tuesday. So hopefully they can get them both in the series, and then Seattle is too far away to know how that lines up. Yeah, absolutely. And two points. First, I think it's actually a very interesting point about Seattle selling at the deadline. Um, I think most people would 
especially given where Seattle is now dismiss it as, oh, that was ridiculous. How could they do that? So stupid. Fair points. I think in hindsight, maybe they shouldn't have done that. Although, um, you know, they got a return for it and the, the, the guys in the return are contributing now. But in the grand scheme of things, I mean, Paul Seawald, as good of a reliever as he is, and he is a very good reliever, in half a season plus a postseason, how many more wins over Dominic Canzone and uh, Josh Rojas is he contributing? Like maybe point two points. Like it's very mar- It's very very marginal. So obviously, baseball is a game played at the margins, and you don't want to give that. So I don't necessarily agree with the decision. But it's not something that makes or breaks Seattle's year. I mean, you you rewind a few years ago to this Toro, this Graveman trade and how that deflated their clubhouse. It didn't deflate the team because of they lose Kendall Graveman's potentially one war in the second half of the season. It's just the general culture of are we buying or selling? So there's a fine line between the actual sort of, I want to say, motivational impact of, of playing for a buyer or a seller and the actual impact on winning games of buying versus selling, especially with such a relatively small trade. It's not like they're out here trading Logan Gilbert for a, like a, a prospect package to, to bolster their hitting uh, like five years down the road. Like obviously that would be very different, but it was a very marginal trade. So I do think that some of the narrative around buying versus selling does need to change because at the end of the day, teams are trying to find ways to improve and Seattle, at least to their understanding, found a way to do so while also remaining competitive. And that is, yep. you know, a credit to them, assuming you do support the trade. Um, as a second point, I just think there needs to be something said about how important winning the division actually is. I mean, this is just night and day. And I'll explain why. Let's say they don't win the division. They get the five seed. They go for a three-game series into Tampa Bay or Baltimore. That's not fun. Nobody should argue that that's fun. Are the Astros the favorite in that series? Maybe. I mean, they have two really, really good starters, better than the 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 two the two best starters on either team. Although you know both teams have guys performing very well at this point, so maybe they'll be the favorite. But it's close. They're if they are the favorite, it's probably not with more than a fifty five percent chance to win the series. Fine. Then. After that, assuming you pass that, then you go on the road, likely to either the other of Tampa Bay or for, or Baltimore or Seattle or Arlington. No matter where you go, you're now dealing with the back half of your rotation against the front of their rotation in a really tough place to play. You are probably going to be the underdog in that series. I can't guarantee it, but probably. And all of that just to get to the ALCS as most likely the road team against the other team that we were just dealing with in that scenario. That is an extremely hard path, and this was just to get to the ALCS. How do you get to the ALCS if you win the division? You win a best three of five home series against either the Minnesota Twins or the worst wildcard team. That is such a difference. That is such a difference. So, look, if you don't want to operate with postseason urgency in these games, fine. Like, I can't, at this point, I can't sell it to you because, yes, the Astros will still be playing baseball in three weeks no matter how badly these next three weeks go. Your season is not literally on the line. But this is as urgent as you need to be given the circumstances and given how advantageous winning the division actually is, given the strength of your opponents, the home field advantage, how you align the rotation. It's just all better when you win the division. So, look, we can't change how the last... 120 games were played in terms of how how many played appearances Corey Jolks got or uh, where certain players hit in the lineup like that's done. Yiner Diaz is not winning rookie of the year because of how infrequently he played in April and May like that's done whatever. 
but these next 40 games need to be treated like playoff games. You need to be pulling pitchers fast. You need to be using relievers. And guess Only what? Only 30, 30, 30 games. 30 games. Yeah, there you go. So guess what? At least maybe, maybe this is just personal from a fan's perspective, but if you lose in October because you won the division, but you tried so hard to win the division that maybe you just burnt your players out a little bit too much, at least that shows that you recognize the importance of winning the division. You put yourself in a position to win, and guess what? Maybe it just didn't work out because you needed to have your foot on the gas for just a little bit longer. That is, to, at least in my mind, so much more appreciated than just coasting your way to the five seed and losing because, oh, you just had to go into, maybe you beat Baltimore or Tampa in the wildcard series, but then you have to go into the other one of those stadiums yeah. with the back end of your rotation. Like, it's just not the effort that you need at this point of the season, given the circumstances. Yeah, so two things. First, we, all the talk about rest, you know, the Atlanta Braves clinched the division probably three months ago, if for all intents and purposes. Their top four guys are all Cal Ripken. They haven't sat at all, ever. Um, I know Ozzy Albies got hurt, so there you go. They well, yeah, rest. and also consider the injury that Acuna was coming off of. Exactly. Seattle, who, by the way, is more relevant to us here because they're a game in front of us. Um, their third baseman, Eugenio Juarez, or Suarez, excuse me, um, has played all 130 games. Um Teoscar Hernandez, not a particularly athletic guy, and he's in his 30s, has played 129 out of 130 games. Julio had a small injury. He's missed five games. He's played 125 out of 130 games. Ty France, 127 out of 130 games. He's had three games all season. I mean, only Bregman on the Astros even approaches that amount of utilization. Of And they actually wrote an article about it. He just doesn't like sitting, so he doesn't sit. I mean... The one thing about Dusty is it's not so much philosophical. It's that basically his players just do what they want. And once you realize that, that yes, there's like, there's some examples like coming off of injury, gives an extra day, whatever. But like a player says, hey, this is what I like to do. Then they do it. You know, I like catching. Yeah. So, um, you know, Jordan in left field, well, he likes to play left field. You know, so um, now that said, obviously no one needs rest right now or else there is nothing to play for. Um, so you, you have to play guys every day. You even left out here, not only do you have the advantage of home field and having your rotation set if you are in the division series, that three or six team, the Twins or the worst wild card, is going to show up with none of their top two or three pitchers full rest for game one. So you're getting the third starter if they swept their wild card series or the fourth starter if they had to use all three games. You're, you are as favored as you can be to go up one nothing in your own ballpark. Um, and so it's just a huge, huge advantage. And so I'm hoping they're going to chase it as aggressively as they should. Um, and the other thing that you mentioned about the deadline with Seattle and buying and selling, I wanted to circle back to. Part of the reason not to buy for them is what we talked about. They've got five starting pitchers. It's very hard to raise the floor. Who would, I mean, other than Verlander and Scherzer, there was really nobody on the market who would have been better than Wu to put as your number five starter. And they have the same issue in the lineup where all of their spots are filled with guys who are like 100 OPS plus, 105, 110. It's very hard to bring, and their bench is good. So it's very hard to bring someone in there. If, if they had bought, it would have had to have been one of these, we're selling the farm for this one guy kind of things to bring, like they did last year with Castillo. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's a lot for them to do anyway on the buying front. I'm, I'm happy that you know, gun to my head, I'd rather them have Rojas at second base than Paul Seawalt closing games. I'll take the trade they made from an Astros point of view. But like you said, it's probably not much. Yeah, um, I think so. And just quickly, yeah. I, I, I think 
you know, what you said about rest days, it'll get passed off as, oh, you don't understand the grind of an 162 game season. Oh, it's just you don't get it. Like that's the I'm told the Braves. I'm told the Braves are the single most old school. They're obviously not. We know that. But the single most old school, we take care of our players because we understand how real baseball is played. They don't rest anybody ever. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, no, they literally they, they rest guys when the MLB tells them that you're not playing a baseball game today. That's their strategy. And look, it'll get passed off as, oh, you don't understand the grind. Oh, you're setting up these guys to get hurt. Unless you truly believe that there's some sort of moral argument at play here, that you're putting these guys and their bodies through unhealthy situations by doing that in which case it's ridiculous because there's no reason that Alex Bregman is more fit to play 162 games than like a Yiner Diaz except he's a catcher so you know scratch that if Yiner Diaz is just DHing and playing first base he is as fit to play 162 games as Alex Bregman so if any if, if not more given the soft tissue stuff that Bregman's dealt with in years past so you're dealing with this now case of oh you just don't understand the grind of it. Like, no, what you what you don't understand is how you have to weigh the risks of sitting guys, especially in big games, against the reward of having your best players there for all games, or at least well, we saw this would. Wednesday night, right? And we didn't go over these game by game; it's been a little while. But they had uh, Jordan Alvarez on the bench after he jammed his finger in a door at home. He missed a couple of games. It, it happens. Life happens. They pinch hit first with Singleton in the seventh or eighth, which is whatever. That's the first time pinch hitting from all the, you know, and then they moved Yiner behind the plate. And then they pinch hit for the pitcher's slot and Jake Myers in the bottom of the 10th inning, the game on the line. They pinch hit for both of them with Dubon and then Jolks. Dubon for Myers, which is its own kind of questionable. And then Jolks for the pitcher's spot. And then Jordan started 12 hours later i mean started played the whole game hasn't sat since played played the whole blowout yeah <laughs> they, they i mean i think they got him out for a singleton pinch hit bat um the other day yeah i mean it, we, we, we didn't even talk about the tucker incident in seattle where yeah. tucker was able to play to hit once and play two innings of defense which apparently he, he was sick enough where he couldn't take four plate appearances as the designated hitter. Basically go up to hit four times, maybe run the bases once or twice, and go to the dugout, sit there the rest of the game. But he was healthy enough, or he wasn't sick enough, to be unavailable as a pinch hitter and defensive replacement. I don't know. From my baseball experience, and obviously you know, we'll get passed off as, oh, it's not big league baseball, but from my baseball experience, it's a lot more mental and physical effort to have to go stand in the field while the other team is hitting, being able, having to prepare for every pitch, than it is to just go up and take a few hacks. Like Hitting is not the physical exertion that you'd expect, at least ex- extended over a long period of time, compared to standing out there in the field running when you don't necessarily expect to have to run yeah. like look neither of us are medical professionals with tucker with yordan we get it there might be some guys who signed off on this this might not literally be the dusty baker decision but it is very 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 uh curious that they really that yordan and tucker fell into these categories of not healthy enough to do this but healthy enough to do this when the this and that seemed very very similar on the well surface. i mean it's just you juxtapose it with you know forget atlanta if you because they're not relevant to us directly but you juxtapose it with seattle are, are we supposed to believe that a eugenio suarez hasn't had a single day where he felt suboptimal all year he's been in the lineup every single day teoscar hernandez nothing right ty france nothing there are three games out of 130 
And these aren't even stars. These are just better than the alternative to get to the point you made a few episodes ago, right? If you have two players and one's a 105 OPS plus and one's a 90, the 105 or 95 even, the 105 should play every single game. They're applying that, right? Seattle's like, yes, Ty France and Eugenio Suarez are like 105 OPS guys. They're not special, but they're better than what else we have. So they're going to play every single day. So, you know, like you said, I hope just to wrap it up here. I hope we don't end up in a place a month from now where we're sitting around having lost the division by a game, getting the fifth or sixth seed, losing on the road in two or three games or worse and not even making it and thinking, boy, I wonder if we could have optimized. Maybe Yainer shouldn't have sat for two months. Um, maybe, you know, we should have played guys every day who were healthy. But to the extent that we could be sitting in that position, we have to point out as we go in real time, there's days like the Jordan pinch hitting experience where you have to ask yourself, would Seattle have used their star player who was kind of sort of healthy but needed a little bit? Probably. And I just feel like there needs to be some understanding of that among the fans that it is a choice to take the long view to the extreme in every single scenario. And the opportunity cost of that is if there's another team that's almost as good as you, you're giving them a significantly better chance of winning your division. And you stack the decisions up and that's where we're at. So that's it for me. Hopefully just before I go back to Aiden here for last thoughts, um, up in Boston this week, You'd love to tee off on Sale, who really doesn't have his prime stuff anymore. We know that they they saw Chris Sale last week, and um, you know they're going to see him again here. They saw Bello last week; they're going to see him again here. You'd, you'd like to get good outcomes, but boy, Javier in France the next two nights. My concern, obviously, is we're going to be in some ten nine kind of games, um, you know, up at Fenway, and so we'll see how it goes. Uh, last thoughts from you tonight, Aiden? Yeah, I mean. One interesting thought I had, and you know, we won't go too deep into this, but it's a, it's a very interesting thought. The, the crowd that seems to be like, oh well, you know, Yiner's development couldn't be rushed. Like that's just not that's not baseball, right? Baseball is you know easing a guy, especially in the catcher position. Like those, okay, that argument seems to come from a lot of the same fans who would seem to argue that, you know, let's say manipulating service time, right? That's not real baseball. You call the guy up when he's ready, and you play him when he's ready. And if you're manipulating service time, that's a very Jeff Luno, like chess pieces move, right? You're not actually concerned necessarily for the well-being of the player. You just want to to have his services for as long as possible, right? So what if you just viewed Yiner's usage as just somehow the Astros manipulating his service time, right? Obviously, they're not manipulating his service time by keeping him on the bench. But what if the Astros instead in an alternate universe, the Astros said, you know what, Yiner, we're keeping you in the dugout or we're keeping you in AAA in April and May because we want to manipulate your service time. And then come June, you're going to come up and play most days for us. And the Astros lose a division by one game. I bet most fans, no matter, like especially the, you know, the more old school fans would probably be like, don't manipulate his service time. That's what you get, right? You, that's what you get. You try to use Yiner as some chess piece and, you know, you don't get his full value. And yeah, that's what you get. How is that that different? Except now you're not actually manipulating. There's no real benefit to even keeping him on the bench. You don't get that benefit of the extra year as you, in, in the case you would or in you as you would in the case of this extra service time manipulation. It's a right? shame it's, it's not like college thing. football. In, you know, in college football, they could retroactively apply for a red shirt on his first two months here and maybe get that 2030 season 
under team Seriously. control. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, he was basically, I mean, his service time wasn't literally manipulated, but he didn't play, just like Jordan Alvarez didn't play the first two months of 2019. Obviously, George Springer's service time, even though it wasn't for as long, was a was a talking point in 2014. Like, if the Astros lost the 2014 division, obviously, they weren't even necessarily close, but the Astros lost the 2014 division by half, or let's say one game at the end of the year. I bet some fans would be like, maybe if George Springer came up of uh, Two weeks earlier, they would have gotten that extra win. Well, the Einer Diaz, it was two months, right? I mean, at a certain point, you really do have to wonder. So I hope for sanity's sake, the Astros either win the division or make the playoffs while losing the division by as much as possible so we don't have to worry about these what-ifs because, I don't know, there's a whole long list of them. But for now, we'll stay in the present and just hope that the Astros capitalize on their, their very good chance to, to, to be successful this year. Yeah, I'd love nothing more than the scenario, Aiden, just to end on this, where we're hearing from a bunch of fans after they win the division by two games that Dusty had it the whole way, and you know we should just shut up with all the inefficiencies. Because the alternative, where they lose it by one or two, get ready for an avalanche of excuses about how they would have lost the division by 10 games if they'd been managed yeah. by someone with all these injuries. My goodness. I mean, yeah, losing Jose Arquiti for two months and Luis Garcia for a year is just insurmountable i know the injuries were a bit more extensive than that but it's it's just baseball i mean you just can't you can't always win and if you think otherwise you're spoiled by success i'd yeah, love to see how jeff luno would what, what jeff luno would say to you can't always win if you were still around here yeah i mean look seattle and texas they have nine figure aces who are not going to throw another pitch all year and have barely pitched with degrom and ray so i don't think people are saying that they get a pass on losing the division to us all right, that'll do it for this week. Uh, we hope to have a nice week with the Red Sox and Yankees. In fact, we should be able to do a show for you. Won't be an issue on Thursday when they are off as the team travels home. So we'll recap the Boston series in full um, you know, on Thursday or certainly by Friday morning to get you set up for the home series uh, against the Yankees. Have a good week, everybody.